Okay, our sermon today comes from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So please could you turn there now. Uh, My intention going forwards is to do a short series on this text. Probably no more than 42 sermons as best as I can estimate. Anyway, we'll start by reading the whole chapter. It's nice and short, but today I think you'll be grateful we're only looking at verses 1 to 3. But before we do, let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful depth of resource that you've given us in Scripture. And that we can read it a hundred times and then on the hundred and first time find something new that tells us about you. Thank you for all that you have put there, for the wisdom and the knowledge that you have used to give that to us. And we pray that we would hear what you have to say to us today. It would be uncluttered by the other thoughts of life and all the stuff that's going on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Verse 1, do we begin again to commend ourselves or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. And we have such trust through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord." Well, that was a bit torturous to read, and it was probably the same to listen to, despite my exceptional oratorical skills. 
However, this particular chapter has been singled out by many commentators as being the clearest explanation in all of Scripture of the difference between salvation by works and salvation by grace. So it's a fantastic text. It's well worth our attention, and I'm really looking forward to going through it. It's just a bit unfortunate that Paul does have this complicated way of writing things, and yes, this passage does contain another one of his famous extra-long sentences, but we'll get to that in another sermon. So let's unpack this first bit and see where we go. To start, let's give some context to these two books, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Well, what was Corinth? Corinth was a Greek city that sat on a north, south, east, west crossroads. So it was a bit like Palmy, but a lot more interesting. Any here, anybody here from Palmy? <laughs> and due to that position, it was an important commercial hub, and therefore it attracted folk from all over. There were Romans and Greeks and Egyptians and Asians of all varieties living there together. And as such, it was a ripe field for the gospel because these different folk would certainly take its message back home, and so the gospel would be spread all over the world. But it wasn't a city of high moral standards. The temple of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love, was there, and that had a thousand priestesses, which was just really a nice name for a prostitute. In fact, the city was so notorious for sexual bad behavior that the Greek word Corinthia zomai, mean literally to act the Corinthian, became the common word to describe fornication. So it probably wasn't a good idea to say that you were from Corinth on your job description. Paul had visited Corinth in about AD 50, towards the, second of his, towards the end of his second missionary journey, and he had founded a church there. This book of 2 Corinthians was written about six years later in AD 56, as a result of Paul hearing that there were some serious problems in the church. So, that's the background. Let's look at verse 1 then. To start with, I want to clear up the meaning of the word commend. The problem is that in its most common modern use, we'd most likely understand it to mean praise. So when we read, do we begin again to commend ourselves, or do we need some other's epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you, it might sound to us like, do we begin again to praise ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of praiseworthiness to you, or letters of praiseworthiness from you? Steady on there, Paul. You know, it's just not done to blow your, old, your own trumpet, old chap. These days, we really don't like people who praise themselves, do we? It's just not done. But actually, that's not what he's doing at all. That's how the New King James Version puts it. Let me read to you what the ESV says, and maybe things will be a bit clearer. ESV says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Well, that's the same word. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Ah. Oh, so this is about credentials then. You see, commend can also mean to recommend as worthy of confidence or favorable attention. And that's exactly the sense here. In the Greek, the word means to, to place or to put together. When one brings together a person with another person in this way, it's a way of affirming them quickly. It's like saying, well, 
you know me already, therefore if I say this person is okay, then you can be sure that they too are okay. Of course that's very easy if you're physically present, but if you are far away in AD 55 with no video phone or internet, then pretty much your only option is to write a letter. And that's what they did. At that time, letters of commendation were a very common way of establishing your reputation in a new town. Here's an example written by a Roman. Uh, to Julius Domitius, military tribune of the legion from Aurelius Arcalius, his beneficiaries, greetings. I have already before this recommended to you Theon, my friend, and now also I ask you, sir, to have him before your eyes as you would myself. For he is a man such as to deserve to be loved by you. For he left his own people, his goods, and his business, and followed me, and through all things he has kept me safe. I therefore pray you that he may have the right to come and see you. He can tell you everything about our business. I have loved the man. I wish you, sir, great happiness and long life with your family and good health. Have this letter before your eyes, and let it make you think that I am speaking to you. So this is why chapter 3 begins with this question. Paul asks his readers if they'd like some written evidence of his worthiness to be giving them such important spiritual advice. Perhaps it's only my perception, but it does seem to me, reading through here, that it seems there's a bit of a sarcastic edge to his question. It's almost like he's saying, perhaps you'd like a letter of recommendation for me, like those other guys that you've apparently listened to way too much. It seems that a letter is really important to you because they seem to have gotten an awful lot of your attention. But he doesn't wait for an answer. No, you don't need any letters about me, he says. Why? Because you are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us. Written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is, of the heart. So the general meaning of these first three verses is pretty obvious. Why would you need anything to convince you of the authenticity of Paul's message when the result of meeting him for the first time was that Jesus became your Lord and your life was changed forever? Now, with that settled, there are a couple of ways I could go. And obviously the, the first thing I might think about is to talk about the importance of salvation being written on our hearts and the Holy Spirit's work there. But maybe I'll, I'll hold that thought for another day. I want to talk about this word epistle instead. It sounds a bit flash, but essentially it just means letter, the kind that you write and send. Unsurprising then, the literal Greek is to send. So we could restate this text for clarity by replacing epistle with letter. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly you are a letter of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, and so on. Well, that's helpful for understanding, but it doesn't really explain the word properly. A letter is like this. Dear Mum, hope you are fit well and in the best of health. 
Another tree fell down today. Love, Dave. Well, an epistle is a bit more than that because it's defined as the term that is applied to formal instructional, instructional or elegant letters. Dearest Mater, I do hope that this little note finds you in extraordinarily good health. One of our small grove of pioneer radiata assumed a horizontal position this present day. Your loving offspring, David Tastard III, OBE and Bar. <laughs> right, so now we know the difference between letter and epistle. Let's try to figure out why that might be important. We can't lose sight of our scene. Paul needs to say some important things, personally challenging things. In fact, people may be hurt and need counseling. If he is to be heard properly, then first he must be recognized by the hearers of a man of integrity. They must be thinking, I can believe what this man says because I know that he is not a liar and he is properly informed. Now we've seen that one way we might be convinced of that is by a letter of commendation. But letters can be forged and one can write a lie in a letter and no one will know. So what works best? Well, you've got to walk the talk. This is where the rubber meets the road. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to practice what you preach. Actions speak louder than words. If what we see and what we hear and what we read are all in alignment, then we can have high confidence in the message. But that usually takes a bit of time to check through. We have to, we have to be watching a person for quite a while before we can re be really sure that they are what they say they are. But there's one circumstance where that isn't true. And that is when the one that we are observing is us. After all, the person I know best is me. I have been observing me for over 50 years. And although I do have to shake my head at some of the stuff me does, I do at least know when me is lying. That's unique, actually. It's something that can't be said for anybody else in the whole world because nobody else has a red light on their forehead to indicate when they are telling porkies. And that's why we have different words for doing the very same things. We say, I experience, but you behave from my perspective. And this is why Paul goes straight to the point. No, I have no need to prove myself at length, because you are the proof. You already know for certain by your very own experience and by the behavior of your fellow believers what is the truth. Truth with a capital T. And you must know that I am right because that truth is written on your heart, not on any piece of paper. And what is that truth? The truth is that the law and its feasts and sacrifices is done for. God has made a new and perfect way for all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, to deal with their sin once and for all. It was all done by him, by his love and his grace, and not by anything that a human does or can do. Jesus was the only answer, the perfect sacrifice. So if you want to be God's son or daughter, repent of your sin and follow Jesus, and you will live forever. That is the truth. That is what you already know. Anything else is just rubbish. 
It's at this point that the difference between an epistle and a letter becomes personally important to you and I. So let's just remember two things. Firstly, remember the literal Greek for epistle is to send. To send. Secondly, remember that an epistle is a letter that teaches. So we are sending a letter that teaches. Thus, if I preach the gospel to you, I am being an epistle because I am sending it to you. And in it, I am teaching you the truth. And my deepest desire, friends, is that you will not turn away at once more, but it will take root in you and you will be saved. But that's not where the truth stops. Did you play games of touch when you were a kid? I don't mean touch rugby, although the concept's kind of the same, but games where somebody was it, and then they had to touch somebody and pass it on. You know, I remember spending almost entire summers in our family pool playing a game called Marco Polo. Remember that? Okay, it had to swim with their eyes closed, or at least you had to pretend with your eyes closed, and try to find others in the pool, and then touch them so that they became it. And the only thing you had to help you was your, your hearing. You'd say, Marco, and everybody else had to respond, very quietly so you couldn't tell where they were. Then you'd swim like mad to the closest polo and hope like anything they hadn't gone in a different direction to the one that you'd guessed. We've all played games like that. Well, the gospel is the same but way more serious because it also involves touching people who have their eyes closed. So if I say epistle, the question is will you respond yes and become an apostle, or will you just swim away silently beyond my reach? But the thing is that if you do respond apostle, then you too must become epistle. You too become a message sent. We are now brothers and sisters together in the family of God with the same mission, to be an epistle of Christ to all men everywhere. Do you see that? If you become a Christian, you must pass it on. Must, not because it's a rule and you'll get the cane if you don't, but because you know it's wonderful and radical and life-changing and you want other people to experience that gift too. So how do you do that? How do you be an epistle? Well, an epistle is not just a story on a page. A story is only two-dimensional. It has no real life and you can only see it from one direction. It has no real substance. You can never build a wall with a story. But an epistle of the heart, as we're talking about today, isn't like that because it has a three-dimensional reality. It has width and depth and height. You can pick it up and you can examine it from all sides. It is a thing. Warning, though, attempting to pick fellow Christians up in real life to examine them from different angles may be hazardous to your health. Firstly, an epistle has width because it is passed on to those around you. 
Now, I don't just mean the gospel message, but also the gospel life. They must live together. If we are to be effective epistles, it means that we not only tell, but we teach. Do you remember that I said that instruction was part of the definition of epistle? It's true that teaching is most commonly associated with telling, just like we are doing here. You sit and I try to keep you awake. Hopefully, if I am successful, at the end you are better informed. But the most effective teaching has to include doing. A Christian's doing must be the same as their saying. Now, I could easily assemble a list of things to do in that regard, and we could have a three-point sermon. But I'd rather keep it really simple. We have this very helpful summary given to us by Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Simple. If you just live those out, your doing will be widely telling to all those around you. Secondly, your epistle has depth because it changes you continually, little by little. Now these days, I have a little wobbly friend inside my shirt who is always with me no matter how I try to get rid of him. His name is Boop. Now I know there are some people who know exactly what that means. If you don't, I'll just stand sideways, and I think you'll know what I mean. I can tell you the exact moment that he arrived. It was at half past 12 on Sunday the 15th of October, 1998. Now, of course I can't tell you when Boop arrived, because it never happens that way, does it? It's not like at 12.29 I weighed 78 kilos, and then at 12.30, boof, I instantly weighed 178 kilos. No. Boop kind of crept up on me, so I didn't notice until he was fully developed. <laughs> now, our epistolic life is like Boop. Our growth is slow, but real. Sometimes we may become frustrated by our lack of spiritual progress because it seems to be so slow. We wonder if anything is happening at all. But what does verse 18 of this same chapter tell us? It says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. It tells us that the life of the believer is one of continuous change. Tell me, does it say here that some of us are being transformed? No, it says we are all being transformed from glory to glory. Does it say anything about the speed with which we are being transformed? No, it doesn't say that either, but it does say that it is happening and that it is happening thanks to someone a lot more reliable than yourself. Maybe progress is slow in your life, but trust the Holy Spirit. That progress is there, for He is God, and He will not fail in the task that He has taken up in you. 
Thirdly, our epistle has height because its very existence depends on its connection to our Heavenly Father. If that connection isn't there, then we are back to two dimensions, and so our faith is hollow. It has no real existence. So, do you have that connection? Or are you just hoping that the world's messages are correct? That there is really no God? He's just an invention to prop up weak-minded people. And so it doesn't matter what you do at all. Or maybe you do believe there is a God, but you are dealing with that belief by wobbling from one end to the other of a set of scales, hoping that all the good stuff that you do will outweigh the bad stuff, and in the end, all will be well. Friends, here's the truth of it. There is a God. Only one in his nature is described in the Bible. Nowhere else. As far as connecting to him is concerned, there is nothing, nothing that any human can do to buy a relationship with him. It only comes through one person alone, Jesus. Make him your Lord and serve him only for the rest of your life and your epistle will reach as high as is ever possible, right into the loftiest part of heaven, the throne room of God. And that connection cannot be broken. It will be so forever. So perhaps today, I pray today is the day when you will finally hear the Lord's call. Make the decision to answer yes. Trust me, there will be great rejoicing both in this church and in heaven if you do so. Joy for the epistle of another apostle. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we will be most conscious of the need to live out what you have put inside us. That our epistle will speak to the world around us in such a way that more and more people will come to know you as Lord. And that we can look forward to joining them at that great feast that we sung about earlier. Oh Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.